one of the most appreciated aspects of sports is the way that it brings community and groups together under one common supporting passion. It is the same thing that drives millions of people to celebration parades when your team wins the cup. It is also the same trait that pushes family to enjoy the aspects of a sport participated in together. The National Hockey League is no different and has benefited from the contribution of family units, not just individuals, since its early days. One of the original families of hockey was the Patrick family, where Lester and Frank not only began hockey at the highest levels as athletes, but established a reputable league on the far side of the country to challenge for the Dominion Challenge and eventually Stanley Cup. Their family continued the trend with Lynn and Muzz Patrick, both players and administrators in the NHL through the 1930s and 40s. Lynn's son Glenn played in the NHL as well. Frank Patrick's son Craig is a Hockey Hall of Fame member. Dick and Chris Patrick became the 6th and 7th members of the Patrick family to see their efforts contribute to a Stanley Cup victory when Chris celebrated as the Director of Player Personnel with the Washington Capitals in 2018. And as the game grew, there became almost a tiered system of identifying family success in the NHL. The top tier would see families who produce NHL All-Stars and longtime NHL players who spent time in the league, like Henrik and Daniel Sedin, Darian and Kevin Hatcher, Scott and Rob Niedermeyer, and the Sutter family, who has included brothers Brent, Brian, Daryl, Dwayne, Rich, and Ron, and then Brandon, Brody, and Brett have also all made their way to the NHL. The second tier of brothers is made up of NHL players who had a successful career and another brother who either had a respectable or a shorter career. Sam Griffin and Max Reinhardt fit into the second category, as well as Henrik and Joel Lundqvist and Ryan and Drew Miller. The third, and perhaps most brotherly tier, would be the one focused on players who had wonderful careers while their brother was a little more than a blip in the organizational depth chart. Tuka Rask continues to challenge annually for the top goaltender in the league, while brother Jonas plays for Orebo in the Swedish Hockey League. Stefan Roy never made an impact, but his brother Patrick certainly changed the sport forever. Brett Lindros played 51 games in the NHL and recorded 7 points. However, his brother Eric redefined how draft picks were looked at, and of course it is impossible to ignore the record holders for the most points held by a brother combination in the NHL. Brent Gretzky contributes 13 points to the duo total of 2,870 that he has combined with his brother Wayne. The issue with this tiered system is that once you pass the first tier, it is hard to, as the lower contributing sibling, to make a name for yourself and influence the game. This is except for the older brother of NHL great Ken Dryden. Ken is ranked among the top 100 NHL players of all time, both by affiliate sports news outlets as well as the NHL's 100th anniversary list. Yet his brother Dave had an excellent career and contributed to iconic moments in the history of the game. Despite not having the playing career that Ken did, Dave is an incredibly fascinating player in the history of the league, not simply because of who his family was, but because at every turn it seemed like Dave was caught up in a larger part of the game. Whether it was related to the player contracts, transfers, trades, waiver claims, equipment development, financial statuses of teams and leagues, rival hockey leagues, novelty first moments in the NHL, or spectacular personal achievements, Dave Dryden asserted his place into the most conversation-worthy players mid to late 20th century. Hi, I'm Travis Duncan, and my mother tells me that I'm her favorite son, and I'm fully aware that she is lying. And this is Storytime Hockey.
Dave Dryden was born on September 5, 1941, to Murray and Margaret Dryden. The Drydens had three children, Dave, Ken, and Judy. Dave started playing hockey much later than our contemporaries, only joining the organized sport when he was 12 years old. In junior, he played for the Aurora Bears in Ontario, starring in 40 games with three shutouts and a 3-5-2 GAA. He went on to play with the St. Michael's Majors of the Ontario Hockey Association and would help them win the 1961 Memorial Cup. Late in 1961, the Metro Junior A League was founded by Stafford Smythe, better known as Con Smythe, in an attempt to rival the Ontario Hockey Association the league that would become the modern-day Ontario Hockey League. With the aggressive expansion of hockey's popularity from the perspective of fans, players, and businessmen, the need to solidify a strong pipeline of future prospects was higher than ever. Dryden would move to play with the Toronto Marlboros, where he would record appearances in 32 games with 17 wins, 8 losses, and 6 ties, and a 3-1-6 GAA. The Metro Junior A League was not an overly competitive league. The Marlboros and Majors, who had relocated their league allegiances to the Metro Junior A League, were far and away better teams than the others. Both of them were former OHA Junior A teams, while the rest had been promoted from the Junior B level in an attempt to further their development. The league was essentially a Toronto Maple Leaf support network. The Majors had supplied the Maple Leafs with players for years, and the Marlboros were owned by Con Smythe, the same man who both founded the league and owned the Toronto Maple Leafs. However, the league was not meant to be, as the Majors and Marlboros continued to loan players out to other teams to raise the competitive level, the other squads began to struggle financially. The Oshawa Generals, for example, could not play out of Oshawa because they did not have an appropriate arena, and they had to play out of nearby Bowmanville. The league closed at the end of their second season. They did, however, contribute to the future of hockey, both long and short term. Long term, the league saw players come through their ranks like Gary Deneen, Dave Kelly, Ron Ellis, Terry Vale, and one season of Bobby Orr. And during this time frame, the league supplied Dave Dryden with his first taste of NHL action. Beginning in the late 1950s and early 1960s, teams began to have real concerns about the integrity of their team should an individual be injured, none more important than the goaltender. At this point, teams only carried one bona fide goalie. As early as the 1919 NHL season, players who we would consider positional players had to spend time in the crease, such as Sprague Cleghorn. It was never for any significant amount of time and didn't have any major impact on the outcome of the game. However, as was mentioned, hockey wasn't the same as it had been 30 years earlier, especially when it comes to the business side of things. Revenue was now linked to the success of a team, and the success of a team hinged on the quality of the squad. And we can't separate the success of the importance of the financial success of a franchise because teams that survived really did survive. Consider the original six franchises that are praised in the modern NHL. Detroit, Chicago, New York Rangers, Boston, Toronto, and Montreal. Chicago and Boston barely survived through tough financial periods in their history. New York, Toronto, and Montreal weren't even the only franchises in their cities from the early 1900s through to 1950. The integrity of a single game was more important than ever, so NHL ownership agreed to have an emergency backup goaltender at NHL games. While rarely used, there would be one there just in case. And Maple Leafs owner Con Smythe had plenty of goaltenders to access to serve as the emergency backup, considering he now owned a top-tier junior hockey league and a team within it. And during the 1961-62 season, Dave Dryden would be selected as the goaltender to sit in the stands. For his time, he would earn a $10 stipend from the team and, of course, the opportunity to take in a free hockey game. In exchange, he just needed to be available. 
On February 3, 1962, the Toronto Maple Leafs hosted the New York Rangers. The Rangers and Leafs, two members of the original six, played games frequently in short time frames due to the small league, their proximity, and feasibility of travel between the two cities. At the start of the period, Maple Leafs George Armstrong slid a puck into the Rangers' goal, putting his team ahead only 27 seconds into the frame. Not only was this goal a demoralizing blow to the Rangers so soon into the period, but goaltender Gump Worsley went down injured. The Rangers were dealt a serious blow at, at least motivationally, a terrible time of the period. After a brief discussion of how to proceed with the game, it was decided that Dryden, at this point 19, would enter the game for the Rangers. Involving an emergency goalie was not unlike the use of the player in a modern game. When David Ayers entered the game for the Carolina Hurricanes, nobody was prepared for what might occur, and really, he's only being mentioned here so that I can remind Maple Leaf fans that they lost to a 40-year-old Zamboni driver. Dryden entered the game with the Rangers down one to nothing. Dryden would stop 23 of 26 shots over the next 40 minutes and would take the loss as the team fell 4-1. Not many players at the time, especially as a goalie, could say that they had played a game in the NHL at 19 or that the goals were scored by Adam Stanley, Dave Keon, and Ed Litzenberger. Dryden was given $100 for his efforts and a thank you from the team. After his blip in the NHL, Dryden moved to the University of Waterloo where he completed his teaching degree and began work as a teacher. At the same time, he moved to the Ontario Hockey Association Senior League with the Galt Hornets. This league held a place in the top level of men's hockey in Canada and competed for the Adam Cup. In Canada at the time, this was one of the best ways to stay in a competitive level of hockey for players who did not yet make the NHL. Unlike today, there were only so many spots available for players, especially for goaltenders. Dryden's big break would come thanks to two separate influences and changes in hockey. First was the expansion of the professional minor league teams. These teams that established themselves in smaller, more unconventional markets allowed for the growth of hockey through the 1940s to the 1970s. On top of that, in an attempt to expand the league and generate revenues, the NHL expanded from 6 to 12 teams in 1967, doubling the roster spots that existed in the top professional league. Dryden would catch the eye of the Chicago Blackhawks organization that year. After another year in Galt, now named the Terriers, where he recorded appearances in 35 games, he finished the season with four games in the American Hockey League with the Buffalo Bisons with a 1.50 GAA. Dryden would again find himself the benefactor of happenstance when during his time, the NHL teams would begin to carry a second goalie on their own, designated as the backup goaltender. With the expansion of the league and carrying a backup goaltender, there were simply put many more jobs available to players in the league. In 1965-66, he spent the year with the Blackhawks and played in 11 games, recording an 899 save percentage. He spent the next year in the Central Professional Hockey League with the Hawks affiliate the St. Louis Braves, where he led the team with 48 starts. The team would be moved to Dallas at the end of that year, thanks to the expansion of the NHL into that market. Dryden put up good enough numbers to see him spend the next two years with the Hawks, playing 27 and 30 games. In 1969, the Hawks tried to send Dryden down to the minors again with the same team that was now located in Dallas. After playing two games with Dallas, he refused to report, not believing that he belonged in the minors and sat out the year. In 1970, he began playing with the Salt Lake Golden Eagles, a team in the Western Hockey League Senior Division, until a trade could be made to find him at home. In the summer, he had been traded for cash considerations to the Pittsburgh Penguins, and then on October 9, 1970, he found himself traded to the Buffalo Sabres. Dryden would find himself again playing with an expansion team, 
and would record 10 starts as the backup to goalie Joe Daly. This 1970-71 season was a very important year in the lives of the Dryden family. Not only had Dave found his way back to the NHL and had seemingly found a place where he could be comfortable, but at the same time, their other son, Ken, had been called up from the American Hockey League Montreal Voyageurs and broke into the league with the Montreal Canadiens. On March 20th, 1971, the Sabres traveled to Montreal for a late-season meetup against the Canadiens. The league was still operating in a way where the original franchises, for the most part, still found themselves the most successful in the league. Sabres coach Punch Imlach was looking for a way to drum up some sort of spark for their Saturday night game versus the Canadiens. Imlach was always the showman, and he knew that brothers had played in the NHL before. The league started with the Cleghorn brothers, and hockey had seen players such as the Patricks involved in its earliest iterations as a professional game. But no two brothers had ever played as goaltenders against each other. Imlach penciled Dryden in for the away game start. Montreal's coach was Al McNeil. McNeil has a conflicted legacy with the Canadians. He was a new coach to the team that year, but didn't speak French. This led to significant disagreements with French players such as Henri Richard. In the finals that year, he would in fact come out publicly and criticize the coach, calling him incompetent after being benched. Whether he didn't want to take part in the charade or feel-good moment, or did not understand the potential novelty of having the first occur with him as the coach, McNeil did not take the opportunity to put in rookie goaltender Ken in the net that night. To be fair, Ken Dryden had only played two NHL games at this point, so it is understandable that McNeil committed playing time to his starting goaltender, Rogi Vachon. When the teams took the ice, Imlach saw Vachon in net, and 90 seconds into the game, he pulled Dryden for Joe Daly. Halfway through the second period, fortune struck for the Drydens, but not for Vachon, who had lunged to make a save and found himself come up injured, having tweaked his groin in the process. At the time, the understanding medically of goaltender-specific injuries was not where it is today. An injured groin would simply be fixed with rest. The Canadians that season had struggled, and at one point were in danger of missing the play playoffs for the second straight year, something that had not happened to them in over 50. Fully aware that there were more important games ahead against potentially tougher opposition, Vachon did not try to push through the injury and McNeil put Ken Dryden into the game. This was all Imlach needed to take the opportunity to put Dave Dryden into the crease. He pulled Joe Daly and completed his second goalie swap of the game. Dave would stop 12 of 14 shots, and Ken would turn away 19 of 20, as the Habs would go on to win 5 to 2. It wasn't all perfect, however. With their parents watching from the stands, Jacques Lemaire would score at 13:32 of the second period on a shot from 85 feet out on Dave. The brothers became the first brother-goalie combination to square off against each other in the NHL. As far as I can locate, they are also the only brother combination to play against each other as goaltenders in the NHL. That would not be the only storyline that the Dryden's would write that year, as the Montreal Canadiens would ride the hot goaltending of Ken through to the Stanley Cup Championship in one of the most iconic playoff runs in NHL history. It also provided us with the classic image of him leaning on his hockey stick waiting for the puck to drop. Dave would play three years with the Sabres, all as a productive contributor to these teams' success, including an appearance in the 1974 NHL All-Star Game. At the end of that season, however, the Sabres let him go and he moved as a free agent to the Chicago Cougars of the Western Hockey Association. 
The Cougars were one of the maiden franchises of the WHA, a league who had made it their goal to challenge the NHL for its place of supremacy in the North American hockey market. One of the main methods was to poach NHL talent away from the franchises with lucrative contracts. Teams like the Cougars were desperate to poach talent off their crosstown rivals, and even have a well-documented attempt at securing the services of Bobby Hull, who did eventually join the league but with the Winnipeg Jets. The Cougars had a difficult start to their franchise as they could not find the financing required to put both a competitive team on the ice while securing finances for an arena. Ownership issues plagued the team until local restaurateurs Walter and Jordan Kaiser bought the team and provided some temporary stability. On the ice, the product was not much better, as they led the league in goals against with 295 in 78 games, an average of 3.7 per game, behind the goaltending of Andre Gill and Jim McLeod. Their second year, they did fare a bit better and even made the playoffs, but their team was still wildly inadequate for the new league and continued to struggle financially. The Cougars signed Dave Dryden for the 1974-75 season, and he contributed the best he could, but the team continued to struggle. In 45 games, he only managed 18 wins and a 3.87 GAA. The team again faced ownership issues this season, and they could no longer be kept out of the spotlight. In an effort to get out from the ownership responsibilities of the team, the Kaiser brothers sold the team to players Pat Stapleton, Ralph Backstrom, and Dave Dryden. The new player-owner model only lasted one year before the team was financially unviable and it folded. Players were assigned to new teams in the WHA based off the dispersal draft and Dryden found himself in Edmonton. In Edmonton, Dryden played the role of the starting goaltender. In 1975-76, he played 62 games. In January of 1977, he was traded to the New England Whalers along with Jack Carlson, Steve Carlson, Dave Keon, and John McKenzie for future considerations, which turned into Dave DeBole, as well as Dave Hunt and Cash. Having already played 24 games with the Oilers that year, Dryden would refuse to report to New England and was suspended by the team. His holdout worked the way he wanted it to, as he was returned to Edmonton in September for the start of the new season, along with Brett Callaghan for Jean-Louis Levasseur and future considerations. The suspension and holdout are an interesting parallel between him and his brother who held up for a contract in the 1973-74 season with the Canadians. He would play for four years with the Edmonton squad in the WHA from 1975 through to 1979. In the 1978-79 season, he would put up his best numbers and record his best personal season. Early in that season, he played a home game against the Indianapolis Racers with their 17-year-old potential phenom in Wayne Gretzky. Former teammate and former co-owner of the Chicago Cougars, Pat Stapleton, was coaching the racers at the time and met with Dryden the night before the game. Stapleton was lamenting the fact that this young rookie, Gretzky, had not managed to score yet, and he was concerned that if the player did not start contributing, he would have to return the player to the minors. Considering that Gretzky had signed a personal services contract with team owner Nelson Scalvania, worth well over a million dollars, Stapleton was understandably unnerved about his future as a coach of the franchise especially considering its own precarious financial state. The following night, Gretzky scored his first two professional goals both on Dryden. Two goals that Dryden now jokingly says saved the career of both Stapleton and Gretzky. Little did Dryden know that 10 games later, the Racers would fold as a franchise, and the Oilers owner Peter Pocklington would purchase Gretzky, goaltender Eddie Mio, and Peter Driscoll to join him on the Oilers squad. The Racers franchise would fold, and the WHA itself, even before the year ended, would decide to shut its doors. Gretzky and Dryden would join the Edmonton franchise as it merged with the NHL, along with teams in Winnipeg, Quebec, and Hartford. Teams in Cincinnati and Birmingham were provided a financial incentive, as one source called it, 
to end their operations. In that final year of the WHA, Dryden put up his best personal numbers. In 63 games, he recorded 41 wins, 17 losses, and 2 ties, with a GAA of 2.89 and a save percentage of 890. He was widely regarded as one of the reasons why the Oilers experienced the success that they did. For his efforts, he was rewarded with the Ben Saskin Trophy as the WHA Goaltender of the Year and the Gary Davidson Gordie Howe Trophy as League MVP. The League MVP Trophy was, was won over both Gretzky and a Quebec Nordique star Riel Cloutier, who recorded 75 goals and 129 points in 77 games. Yet, Dryden did win the award thanks to him leading the league in games played, minutes, wins, shutouts, and goals against average. During that season as well, Dryden had also signed a new contract with a special out clause. If it was determined that he no longer wanted to play with the team, he could retire as a player but moved to coaching. He coached the team for one season and then retired officially at the end of 1980. Dryden's contributions were not only confined to the ice. He would contribute to two pieces of goaltending equipment that created both new ways to play the game but also represented an iconic cultural item in hockey. First was the upper body equipment. Well known for frequently tinkering with his equipment, Dryden combined shoulder and chest protection equipment and increased the amount of protection that goaltenders wore while attempting not to hinder their movement in any drastic way. The modern day butterfly style and willingness of goaltenders to use their torso and bodies to block shots is in no small part thanks to the ingenuity of Dryden. As well, in the summer of 1977, Dryden began experimenting with a design for a mask for goaltenders. Jacques Plante was famous for creating the face mask out of necessity, and fiberglass masks quickly became commonplace. Gary Cheevers was credited with putting markings on his mask when pucks hit him after a joke was made by one of the trainers on his team. From there, decorating of masks became a more commonplace practice. Even Dryden wore decorated masks and his mask from his time in Chicago definitely qualifies as one of the most intimidating masks in the league. Even though masks offered protection, their one-piece design and relatively flat surface only protected the goaltenders from flesh wounds and did not do enough to actually protect the player. After seeing Vladislav Tretiak with a wire cage, and seeing that cage used frequently during exhibition games overseas, Dryden spent the summer molding a fiberglass mask and adding facial protection using a wire mask. He first used it during an exhibition game in Finland. Dryden received a few looks and friendly remarks from his teammates as they headed out into the ice. However, Dryden recalls taking a shot off the mask fairly early in the game. After the puck hit him in the head, he fell over, but quickly realized that even though he had been hit directly on the head, it did not hurt. He got back up and continued to play. This mask would slowly make its way into the league, buoyed by the use of it by Patrick Waugh years later with the Montreal Canadiens. Waugh was an inventor of his own, redefining how the game could be played in a position that had not seen a great amount of progress when he began using a different technique nicknamed the Butterfly. The Profly style, the current method used by most goaltenders today, does not become an option for players unless Dryden created the mask and improved body protection. Dryden did not end his working career there. He returned to teaching and then moved on to be a principal. He also worked for the NHL as a goaltending consultant with a focus on goalie equipment. In dealing with the NHL goaltenders, he often worked with players to modify equipment while adhering to the rules while at the same time advocating for their safety. He retired from the post in 2003. After his career, he continued to support the charity his father started, Sleeping Children Around the World, which supports the collection and fundraising for the purchase of bed kits for children in third world countries. The foundation was originally founded by his father Murray. Fundraising is accomplished only by word of mouth 
and they rely on volunteers as they only have one modestly compensated employee as of 2018, Linda Webb. The foundation provides not only the sleeping kits for the children, but also purchases the supplies for the kits local to their donation, so the support stays in the local community. Dave Dryden himself does not represent any one particular story in hockey. What he does represent is a turbulent time in hockey, from the expansion of the NHL, to the challenge of the arrival of WHA, to the financial burden of team ownership, and the loss of a franchise and a league. He also demonstrates that the players that we celebrate for their all-star and nearly unhuman athletic abilities, such as Patrick Waugh, would never have been able to accomplish the feats that they did without the innovation and creativity employed by others who were involved in the league before them. And when it comes to that, Dave just might continue to push for the claim of the most influential hockey Dryden. The next section of the podcast will focus on players who you may or may not have forgotten about. With no real rhyme or reason to the selection of these players, this portion of the podcast will be dedicated to the players that score occasionally, get traded for second round picks, and sometimes even win an award. This is Storytime Hockey, the players you forgot about. The story of brotherhood and family lines runs strong through the NHL. It seems that every year another player whose father spent time in the professional ranks of hockey is drafted into the league. It provides great entertainment and quirky stories, like the fact that Brooks Like assisted on Michael Nylander's final NHL goal, but he also assisted on his son William's first. Seeing Max Domi suit up for the Montreal Canadiens and hearing that his father is now a Habs fan makes most Maple Leaf fans cringe. 185 NHL father-son combinations have occurred over the lifespan of the league, and those numbers are growing steadily. Then there are the brothers who have played in the NHL, and as we have discussed, there were tears to those who did. It's no mystery why siblings find success like this, as there is always someone of a relatively comparable skill and size to push the competitive nature of sports. The further you look at brothers who did make the NHL, you'll find that there are actually only five sets of twins to play in the league. The most famous of them are going to be Henrik and Daniel Sedin, both of whom had careers that led to their numbers being retired by the Vancouver Canucks and likely a Hall of Fame candidacy. Rich and Ron Sutter were part of the six-brother ensemble of Sutters that made their way into the NHL and were the first set of twins. Chris and Peter Ferrero, as well as Patrick and Peter Sundstrom, also made the NHL as twins. Finally, there is Henrik and Joel Lundqvist. Henrik has gone on to become widely acknowledged as one of the most dominant NHL goaltenders of his era. But whatever happened to Joel? Joel grew up with his brother in Are Jamtland, a town of 800 born to Evan and Peter Lundqvist in Sweden. The area that they grew up in is widely acknowledged for its alpine skiing. However, the brothers chose hockey over what is considered a widely more popular sport in the area. During the winters, their teachers would freeze the sand pit in the yard to create an outdoor skating rink. Their father, Peter, worked for a company that sponsored the Swedish league team Frölunda and would take them to games. They signed up to play their first minor hockey with Jarpen's 
F. And at the practice, the coaches asked who wanted to be a goalie. It was actually Joel who volunteered his brother Henrik, knowing that he would not volunteer himself. In 1993, the family moved to Bastadskan in southern Sweden. Their older sister, Gabriella, was a highly ranked youth tennis player and needed to move south to allow her to continue her development and to attempt to make a career out of the sport. They joined the local team, Rogo BK, and both were both selected for the province's regional team in 1995. In Sweden, there is a junior hockey tournament called the TV Pucken for the under 15 category of hockey players. The tournament was originally named in 1959 because all of the games were broadcast nationally on TV. The tournament serves as a massive scouting opportunity for the nation's top teams to add to their youth programs. Henrik was selected to play in 1996 and Joel joined him in 1997 and the twins were scouted by the Forlunda team manager Jan Carlsen who contacted their father to discuss them joining the program. At this time as well, Forlunda had been relegated recently to the second tier of Swedish hockey, the Elsvenskan, their last time being relegated since. Joel joined their under-18 squad in 1998-1999 and recorded 64 points in 32 games, and moved to their under-20 squad the next year where he recorded 19 points in 25 games. At the 2000 NHL entry draft, the Dallas Stars selected Joel 68th overall. Joel was clearly not an all-star player, but his ability and potential as a two-way forward and willingness to go to the tougher areas of the ice like the corners and in front of the net had the Stars thinking that he could be a valuable prospect. Since Dallas already had one brother, they figured they might as well get the other, and they actually told Henrik that they intended to draft him with their 6th round pick. Dallas did not though, and selected Czech forward Ladislav Vlech, who never saw a day in the NHL, and eventually was selected by the Rangers 205th overall in the 7th round. Joel would remain in Sweden for 6 years, not signing a contract with the Stars, until May 2006. During that time he would feature for the Forlunda senior squad as well as his country in a variety of international tournaments, including the World Championships. In 2006 he would cap off the first half of his European career with a gold medal at the World Hockey Championships in Latvia. He started his North American journey with 40 games in the AHL, featuring with the Iowa Stars, where he recorded 16 goals and 22 assists in 40 games, before being called up to the NHL on December 3rd. Just over a week later, he would play against Henrik, when the Rangers traveled to Dallas for a regular season game. Henrik stopped 43 shots on the way to a 5-2 win for the Rangers, and Joel would record just under 6 minutes of ice time. His first goal would come against the Calgary Flames on January 17th, and he would finish his season with 6 points in 36 games. Joel would play 2 more years in the NHL. His second year he split again between the NHL and the AHL, but he managed to get 55 games in with the Dallas Stars. In his third year he played 43 games, but cracked his shoulder blade. He returned too soon from the injury in an attempt to compete at the World Hockey Championships and re-injured his shoulder. Since it was a contract year, and because he had injuries and a poor point production, teams were only offering two-way contracts, while at the same time, Joel had a wife, was starting a family, and was looking for a bit more security. That is when Furlunda appeared with an offer. His childhood team would offer security and the stability that he needed. Their father had also had brain surgery in 2007, and there were lingering effects including paralysis in front of his face and balance issues. With Henrik in New York, and their sister Gabriella in Sacramento, the timing seemed right to return home. He also turned down more lucrative KHL offers to return to Furlunda. When challenged about taking the easy way out as it was presented to him, 
or dodging the NHL, Joel was always quick to point out that the Swedish league was, and still is, highly competitive level of European hockey. It is a tough league, he said, and it is a lot of work to be able to compete, but it also provided him with the appropriate supports for his life. He returned to Ferlunda for the 2009 season and was named captain of the franchise, a position he continues to hold today. His most successful season came in 2015-2016, and he recorded 19 goals and 19 assists for 38 points in 45 games. Joel made a career on being a responsible player, being good on faceoffs, and being responsible in his own end. He was also a leader on and off the ice. In 2017, Joel was named captain of the World Championship squad from Sweden. The tournament began on May 5th with goaltenders Eddie Lack and Victor Fass tending the goal for the squad. The New York Rangers were eliminated four days later by the Ottawa Senators, freeing his brother Henrik from his duties in the NHL and making him available to participate in the tournament. Joel immediately called Henrik and encouraged him to play in the tournament. After 12 years of playing on different organizations, they were finally able to play on the same team again, something that they had both assumed was no longer going to be an option. With Henrik in net and Joel as captain, the Trey Kronar went on to win the gold medal in a shootout over Team Canada. Since then, Joel has continued his career with Frölunda. In October 2019, he became the franchise's second top goal scorer with 209 career goals. He competed at the Pyeongchang Olympics in 2018, where Sweden finished fifth. He has won the championship of the Champions Hockey League four times, including the two most recent wins. For Ferlunda and the players in the squad, the Champions League and their own personal league are the highest achievements a squad can win, and they start that with their being their goal every year. Internationally, he has won three gold medals and three bronze medals, and has captained his hometown team for nearly a decade. While not the NHL force that the stars had hoped, nor the most renowned hockey player with his last name, Joel Lundqvist has carved out a brilliant Swedish and international hockey career that many players would be thrilled to have. Joel continues to play for his hometown team and he continues to carve out his own hockey story. Storytime Hockey is written and produced by me, Travis Duncan, a proud member of Carlton the Bears Social Bubble. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at Storytime Hockey. Click like, subscribe, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Every interaction we have with you increases the odds that we will appear in a friend's suggested podcast list. So be a good neighbor and hit five stars. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again next episode. <laughs>